Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking with Izzy Jensen, the founder and portfolio manager for Kakariki Capital, a fund that's focused on trading carbon credits. This is an area that I was very nervous about as I know so little about it, but luckily I was in expert hands with Izzy able to take me through the fund, its background, and the opportunity that lays ahead in a very new burgeoning market. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And please also remember that this is not, nor is it designed to be specific or general investment advice. All listeners are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, and of course, seek your own advice and inquiries prior to people making any investments. Please enjoy the episode, I know I did. Izzy Jensen, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, Dave, thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, um, I'm probably about as nervous as I've ever been recording one of these podcasts because I think it's a subject matter I know the least. I've had Kathy Wood on and Phil King and John Hempton, um, you know, all of, all, all, you know, some, some, some super heavyweights in the industry. Um, and, and, and this is the topic that I know the least about, so please take it easy with me. Will do, I'm very happy to be here and bring you up the curve. <laughs> Yep, and hopefully we can do that. So perhaps you can kick off by giving our listeners a little insight to who Izzy Jensen is. What's your background? Yeah, perfect. So I grew up in Sydney um, and went to school here and then I went back to New Zealand for university where my family's from um, before then coming back uh, to Sydney to start work. And I've spent the last seven years at Morrison & Co, which is a leading infrastructure manager. Um, which is where I developed my passion for the space of carbon and decarbonisation. While I was there, I led the research and origination into decarbonisation opportunities outside of renewables. So I looked at things like green hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, carbon farming and the environmental markets more broadly. And it was while I was doing that that I uh, saw and realised uh, the huge opportunity um, that was emerging in this market and that's why I decided to leave and then found Kakariki Capital uh, to take advantage of the opportunities that we're seeing in carbon and environmental markets more broadly. And outside of work, I um, <laughs> really enjoy uh, being active outside, so whether that's ocean swimming, running, um, and then also I enjoy playing bridge on the side. Bridge? Yes. Oh, there we go. This doesn't box because, um, you know, you've walked in and uh, we're in the middle of moving the office here and it's a bit disjointed, but you've walked in in the Allbirds and the Garmin watch and I thought we're going to get on famously, but then the bridge doesn't fit with that. Fascinating. My wife's grandmother was a passionate bridge player, but that, that's an interesting uh, little point there. I'm sure people will absolutely remember that. I'm keen to ask you, what was your impression of going to university in New Zealand after growing up in, in, in Sydney? Um, in terms of what, like... Good, bad, enjoy I, I loved I loved it. I went to university in Wellington, which is a great little city. Um, and I really uh, enjoyed it. I um, 
uh, study law and commerce there and part of the reason I actually chose to go there was they have the Socratic method so it's a science setting and they can ask you questions at any time um, and so I really enjoyed kind of the pressure <laughs> of that environment um, but I absolutely loved it I'll go back anytime terrific okay so let, let's start off here you've talked about carbon credits um, and, and environmental let, let, let's just helicopter up for our listeners and talk about the problem okay and and you know I, I can hear part of and you know some of my dad's friends at the golf club saying oh well you know world's been warming for ages and we may or may not have I think let's just push that aside because mm. we can probably say governments around the world have decided that there, there is global warming that needs to be addressed and even if they don't believe governments have moved financial markets have moved yeah so they tend to understand that when I talk to them and say okay forget whether we think it's real or not financial markets are saying that um, you know, there is a problem with carbon being emitted into the atmosphere that is creating the world to get warmer. There's a whole heap of negative consequences for people to come after us if that is mm. the case, if it gets too warm. So there is um, legislation in place to reduce the amount of carbon emissions. Am I roughly on the right track? Yeah, and I think that's what's really exciting about this opportunity, right? In the last 18 months, you've actually seen a switch. So before the move to decarbonise and to take climate action seriously was being led by governments, but now you're starting to see corporates get on the front foot. And that's because their stakeholders and shareholders and the public aren't letting them get away with it anymore. And so we're now moving into a world where the negative externalities of corporates or emitters are being priced which is really exciting because that's what we need um, to solve the problem of climate change because up until now, those negative externalities haven't been priced, so corporates have been able to get away with it. Um, and to give you an idea of the size of the problem, so uh, about 25 years ago when the UN held their first climate change conference, our reliance on fossil fuels for primary energy demand was at 87%. In the last 25 years, we've reduced our reliance by 4%. And in the next 25 years, we need to get down to zero. And so the scale of the problem is just huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need corporates, we need governments, we need everyone addressing um, that problem. And capital markets is the solution um, for that because we need capital to be invested in these new climate solutions. All right, I'm gonna helicopter just up a little bit to make sure I check in and understand this. And excuse me if I do this throughout our discussion now. The, the biggest sources of emission, if I understand it, are transport, you know, about a quarter of emissions. So we need to work out how we move around. And Tesla seems to be leading the charge, but, you know, batteries with planes and all of that sort of stuff. Um, electricity and electricity production, you know, the mm -hmm. grid and when we plug stuff in, that's super convenient. Um, you've got industry in making steel and concrete and the chemical reactions with that. And then you've got what we eat and the food production and agriculture with cows and so forth and a the deforestation and you know also cows farting etc uh, is roughly there am i roughly on track with that they're the sources that we need to fix yeah they're the big buckets that we need to fix and some of them are easier to fix than others so electricity renewables will play a big part and they're already um, economic compared to fossil fuel uh, sources of energy but if you look at, say, coal and steel um, and plastics and 
say aviation and things, that's part of the hard to abate sectors which make up 30% Mm-hmm. of all emissions and at the moment we don't have a low emissions technology or solution alternative to those um, and so that's where we need to be putting more research and development and more funding towards finding those solutions. Okay before we dive into the solving of it I'm going to just come back up again if I can. You, you mentioned then I founded Kakariki. Now I, I think you set a record in that you're the lowest, I think I'm at about 125 episodes on the podcast. Um, I think you've set a record as in my math, I reckon you're the youngest. So congratulations, you need an award for it. I'll get you a pair of all birds or something to be <laughs> awarded. Um, tell us about Kakariki, why are you, and, and am I pronouncing it correctly? What's the background of it? I found some New Zealand parrot or, or something. Um, what's the background, why, and how did you go about it? Yep, so Kakariki uh, means green in Māori or Māori, um, as people here say it. Um, and I founded it because I, when I was at Morrison & Co, as I said, I spent a lot of time working in decarbonisation and due to just the capital that Morrison & Co has, which was largely infrastructure focused, a lot of the opportunities that we looked at, um, they couldn't invest in. And I personally believe that we need to take action on climate change and I think that um, there's a real opportunity to not only decarbonise the planet, but also deliver exceptional returns for investors. And that's what what I set out to go and do with Kakariki, is to um, provide access to the carbon and environmental markets for investors, while also delivering on meaningful impacts to the environment and Mm -hmm. the communities that these projects are in. And how many of you in Kakariki at the moment? Uh, So at the moment, uh, Kakariki, we've got um, Danny Goldberg, um, is working with me and we're being supported by the Dakota uh, Funds Group while we're scaling. Mm-hmm. Lawrence Myers is the chairman mm-hmm. um, and then we've got an investment advisory board uh, with uh, experts, I guess, um, across a range um, of expertise from investment, ESG, regulation, capital markets. Um, and then within Kakariki we've got, uh, there's myself, a business development manager and another analyst. Okay, so you've got some serious firepower behind you in terms of some of those investors and their track record. Tell us about the fund and what it does and how it does it, please. Yep, so uh, the Kakariki Carbon Fund invests in carbon credits, uh, essentially. And so a carbon credit is one tonne of carbon um, that has been sequestered or abated. Uh, And these... So sequestered means means that the carbon has essentially been kind of sucked out of the air and yes. stored where it... Um, so like a plant uses it to grow, takes CO2 out. Yeah. Yep. And so it gets stored um, either in the soil or in that plant um, or things. And so for every tonne of carbon that you can prove has been sequestered, you get issued a carbon credit, which you can then go and sell onto the market. And at the moment, there is... Um, a bit more supply than there is demand of carbon credits and so the price of carbon credits is lower than where it needs to be to stay on track for two degrees. But over time as more and more corporates uh, choose to take action and commit to net zero um, and things then the demand for carbon credits is expected to significantly um, outweigh the supply side. McKinsey uh, has done a lot of Uh, work in this area um, alongside the task force on scaling voluntary markets and they've estimated that only between 
8 and 70% um, of the demand for carbon offsets will be able to be met because of the issues with scaling the supply side. And so essentially the fund is taking um, advantage of that mismatch between supply and demand with the view that we'll see significant capital appreciation in the price of those credits. Um, so the majority of the, of the fund is focused on that long-term hold strategy by investing in what we believe are the highest quality credits on the market. Um, then there's a small portion of the fund which also takes advantage of arbitrage opportunities because, as you'll know, it's um, an emerging sector and an emerging market and so there's significant um, mispricing um, across the market at the moment. So if I'm right that the whole reason we need carbon offsets and credits is basically the technology doesn't exist now for all of those areas I was talking about, whether that be transport, the power and grid, industry and how we produce steel, you know, mm. Twiggy's out there talking about hydrogen and green steel, but we don't have the technical solutions that we need to get to net zero. So. So industries are going to have to buy and companies are going to have to buy and individuals are going to have to buy offsets. So a really good example of that is if you think about, say, our big supermarket chains in Australia. Um, and if they commit to be carbon neutral or net zero by 2025 or 2030, mm -hmm. in terms of how they would think about going about that, so for their electricity, they can write a renewables PPA. And then they might be able to switch out some of their like, lighting and things within the supermarkets and distribution centers with more energy efficient light bulbs. They can probably make some other energy efficiency improvements. But then if you get down to transport and distribution, they're currently using diesel trucks. Mm -hmm. Today- Teslas don't get you very far. <laughs> well, today there's not, an eco there's not a commercially viable solution for EV trucking or green or hydrogen trucking. Um, and so until that is available, those like supermarket chains will use carbon offsets to get themselves to carbon neutral. And why it's such a perfect mechanism is that as the demand for carbon offsets increases, the price increases. And as the price increases, it, you get this perfect kind of switching mechanism where if you... You look harder for a solution. You look harder for, for a solution. So if you are one of these big supermarket chains, you might... Um, as the price gets up to $100 or $150, you go, well, actually, now it makes sense for us to switch out our diesel trucking fleet mm -hmm. for an EV or hydrogen trucking fleet. And so then they'll drop off and they will no longer demand those carbon offsets. Um, mm -hmm. And there's two different types of offset. You've got a compliance offset where a government around the world has mandated that. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a voluntary credit where... Um, you know, businesses are doing it. And one of the things I want to talk a bit later, you know, 3.9% unemployment, you've got lots of people knocking on the door and saying, not only do I want more money, but show me, you know, your net zero commitment, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if that's the same when we're at 10% unemployment, for instance, but mm. we'll park that for a second. Can you talk about the difference between compliance credits and voluntary credits and where they exist? Yep. Given that you will have both to some degree, although I think you're focusing on voluntary credits. Yeah, so the fund is largely focused on voluntary, around 60 to 70%, but then yep. we do allocate um, some of the fund to compliance or quasi-compliance markets, which I'll get into. So they're in the compliance market, as you said, it's regulated by the government. and So the EU, UK, the EU, where else, what other jurisdictions? Uh, California, yep. on the east coast of America, there's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, New Zealand's under an ETS, 
Australia is this weird kind of quasi voluntary compliance market because it's regulated by the government through the clean energy regulator and a very small portion of facilities or corporates in Australia are covered by the safeguard mechanism, mm -hmm. but largely it is a voluntary market in terms of that the people who are buying the credits are not covered by that safeguard mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the compliance markets are much larger than the voluntary market at the moment, although the expectation is that the voluntary market will continue to grow because at the moment only 17% of all emissions are priced. Uh, under a carbon pricing mechanism, so something that is compliance-led. Um, On the voluntary side, um, so this is where corporates are choosing to voluntarily offset their emissions by going into the market and purchasing these offsets and retiring them. Mm -hmm. And these markets... So XYZ employer wants to be an employer of choice because there's 3.9% unemployment, they need to attract people, they need to keep all their employees happy. One of the ways they do that is by being a good corporate citizen and committing to net zero targets. Yep. And generally, how long are they giving themselves to do that, given the scale of the issue? So um, I will try and um, keep this quite simple, but there's scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of corporates are committing to scope one or scope two by 2030, and then some are committing to scope three by 2050. To give you an idea, so scope one is what you emit directly, scope two is your electricity, but scope three is everything within your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So if you're a bank and you commit to scope three <laughs> carbon neutral, that means that you're anyone- You're not lending to coal, you're not- Well, it means anyone who has a mortgage with you, their house has to be carbon neutral for you to say that you are carbon neutral because they sit within your ecosystem. So for a bank to commit to scope three, essentially the country has to be carbon neutral because they- Everyone's a client. Everyone's a client. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is how we will get to net zero because everyone needs to take accountability for everyone else's emissions. So, so I'd imagine you've got these boardrooms that are saying, yes, we should be doing this. You know, this is the dentist, you know, this is the vibe. We need to sign up for this. Then it comes down and goes down to middle management and these people sit there and go, uh, uh, that's really interesting. Um, how do we actually do that? Yeah, and that's what um, we've been seeing in conversations uh, with um, corporates and people who are sitting on boards of some of the large companies on the ASX is there's more and more pressure to commit to go carbon neutral. So they're making that commitment, but they still haven't figured out <laughs> how they're gonna get there. Um, some of them haven't even measured their emissions. <laughs> um, and so, and that's where the opportunity for carbon offsets come from, because in the short to medium term, there just aren't those low emission technology solutions available. So a lot of these corporates will be using carbon offsets to get there, to get to their targets in the short term. Okay, and it seems counterintuitive to me that you're going to buy the voluntary credits, because I would have thought there was more risk around those because corporates when they figure out how hard it is or they don't actually have to commit to it because unemployment's now 9%, mm. they don't, they can attract people and retain, might, might walk away from them, that it's the government legislated ones that I would have thought were a little bit more safer and you know you have to do it. There's nothing like legislation to force an industry to move. Um, explain why you're concentrating on the voluntary credits. And, yeah. and, and, and what, what country are you doing this in, in Australia or globally? So we see opportunity in both the compliance and the voluntary market. Mm -hmm. um, as I said before, there's uh, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon and 
a carbon credit, like so in the EU, it's an allowance. In New Zealand, it's a unit. Um, it can be called an offset, but they all equal one tonne of carbon. And you're seeing the price of a carbon credit in the EU up at 90 euros. In New Zealand, the price of a carbon credit is above $80. In Australia, it's around $30. And in the voluntary market, it's between $5 and $15. And now a tonne of carbon is a tonne of carbon. So it doesn't make sense why you've got these huge discrepancies in price. But that is because in the compliance markets, the government has these price floors because they're trying to push up the price. And so obviously, you've got cap downside mm -hmm. when you're investing in the compliance market. But in terms of upside, we see significantly more upside in the voluntary market. And the drivers for where, um, for the price in the voluntary market will come from because we don't have enough supply in developed markets mm -hmm. to meet our offset needs. So the offsets will be coming from the developing markets, which is where most of the projects in the voluntary market come from. And so that's where we see significant upside. And we think that as the price of carbon increases, that gap between voluntary and compliance markets will close as well, generating additional alpha in the product. Um, okay, and, and you mentioned there that lots of the projects will come from the developing market. Now, my touch point to these things, I, I remember I, I flew down to Rex, Melbourne recently. Um, was it Rex or one of them? Anyway, I wanted, I wanted to mention that Rex was just an unreal flight to to, to Melbourne, it was almost like they've just discovered we've got big planes now. I think they grabbed some uh, old Virgin planes or something, but it was a good, but, but when I was buying that, the point was there was a little box where I could tick, do I want to offset it? So I ticked that box and it cost me a couple of dollars. Now, of course I ticked that, paid the money, and then I thought, yeah, I wonder if they really do that or they've just gotten an extra couple of percent margin. And, and when I hear you say, lots of these projects are gonna come from the developing world, you know, I sort of think, well, okay, how do we actually know um, that that's actually been done? Where's yeah. the veracity? Where's the audit? Um, you know, talk to me about that. Make me feel a little bit better, please. Yeah. So there's a few things to unpack there, right? There's on the side of actually the supply of the credit and who's verifying and validating these um, the issue of these credits. Mm -hmm. And then there's also who's checking that when a corporate says they're using them to go carbon neutral, who's actually checking that they have retired those credits. That's right, and not just reselling them. Exactly. So on the supply side, the two on it within the voluntary market, the two largest crediting bodies are Vera and Gold Standard, and they've been around the longest, and they've got very rigorous and robust processes around validating a new project. So if you say are doing a reforestation project in Uganda. Mm -hmm. You would um, register the project with Vera, you have to do a project design, you have to prove that you have the um, consent of the local communities where the project will be, you have to prove that you will be sharing the revenue from that project back into the local communities. Mm -hmm. And then every year, Vera will validate the project and they will measure the carbon against what you said you would deliver for. And then on those measurements, they will issue you with credits. Now when they issue you with credits, they end up on Vera's regist registry system. Mm -hmm. Then the project developer may choose to sell that offset or credit to say Rex. And if Rex then wants to say that they've gone carbon neutral, they have to retire that credit. And then on Vera's system, it will show that that credit has been retired by Rex. And that's how you can go and audit and check that the, that 
the offset or the retirement has actually happened. In Australia, there's Climate Active, and so if you say you've gone carbon neutral in Australia, Climate Active essentially certifies that you've gone carbon neutral and you have to say which projects you've used, whether you used Australian carbon credits or whether you've used voluntary credits. And the credits that you've used are open to the public to go and see and scrutinise. Mm -hmm. Surely in its infancy, it's going to be a bit of a wild west. And there's, have you seen you know, uh, fraud in that area? Um, you know, s some of these developing nations, you mentioned Uganda and some of your material you talked about Zimbabwe and a, a project on Lake Kariba. And I've been to Lake Kariba. I think it's the hottest recorded temperature in the world by memory. Um, but they're not really known for their governance, those type of countries. Um, have you seen fraud or, you know, they're definitely, nefarious I mean, activity? As you say, it's an emerging market and sector. And so there will be problems. Um, and there definitely have been cases of that, but that's where it comes down to having an active manager who is going into the market, talking to the developers, talking to the third party auditors who go out every year and check these projects, talking to Vera, ensuring that the project is actually delivering on what they're saying it will. Mm -hmm. um, because no doubt there are developers out there who are gaming the system and over time they will that will be clamped out on. But that's also why you get these price discrepancies. Like in the voluntary market, you'll get some credits which sell for $3 and some which sell for $15. The credits that are selling for $15 are coming from really reputable project developers that are using reputable um, third party auditors and that have um, been able to prove the benefits that they are delivering on. Yep. As an investor, I'm sitting here thinking about you know, you can have really high commoditization, high level of compliance and, and almost perfect information flow and no arbitrage, or you can step into a market that's somewhat disorderly. Um, yes, there will be, it, it's very uncommoditized. There are arbitrage opportunities and it's inefficient. And if you have high information and skill, you can actually, you know, they're, they're all the hallmarks of being able to be early and, and take take on and, and, and get great sort of returns. Where, where is the fund at and what's the status of it? And talk about the terms and you know th those sort of things that you know if potential investors out there thinking about these type of investments, you know, what, what they should be thinking about, how the returns turn up, etc. Mm. So the fund launched in June and we've raised 25 million to date. Aiming for? Uh, at the moment, 100 million. Mm -hmm. We believe 100 million is where we can invest in what we think are the best quality projects, particularly in the voluntary market. But if the voluntary market grows, we can also grow. Mm -hmm. But we're obviously reliant on the voluntary market scaling with us. Um, in terms of the way the fund is structured, it's an Australian unit trust. Um, it's got a 1.5% management fee. Mm -hmm. And then performance fees are 20%, but only paid on realised gains, um, mm -hmm. as I think we mentioned before, it's uh, a reasonably opaque market at the moment in terms of pricing and things. And so it's difficult to, or we believe, it would be unfair to um, have performance paid on unrealized gains uh, in that kind of market. Um, and how liquid are the underlying investments, the credits themselves, and how liquid will the investment be? 
So about 30% of the portfolio is invested in compliance markets, which is significantly more liquid than yes. the voluntary market. That being said, the voluntary market um, does have quite a bit of liquidity and liquidity is improving. Um, but of course, in uh, like in the recent asset sell-off that we had, um, voluntary markets definitely froze up a bit more than the compliance markets did. And then demand came back to the compliance markets earlier than it did in the voluntary market. Because obviously in the compliance market, the buyers are, were required um, to buy the credits. Whereas in the voluntary market, you definitely saw some corporates who were a bit hesitant um, with the current global macro environment. But I think that will become harder and harder for corporates going forward because there is so much pressure from uh, shareholders and stakeholders. And if you've publicly committed to go carbon neutral, it will be very hard for you to backtrack. Have we, ever, have we seen any signs of that yet, of corporates backtracking on uh, you know, some of the statements coming from the board or senior management? Not that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. um, but if you say, think about Woolworths, I'm sure everyone's seen their ads on TV saying we're going green by 2025. It would be very hard for Woolworths to come out and say, well, actually, no, like unemployment is high, inflation's very high. It was a mulligan. <laughs> I don't want that. Okay. So, um, and, and for investors into the fund, um, if they invest in the fund, what, what sort of returns are similar strategies returning? What are your expectations? Um, capital growth, I take it, not income yeah, producing? Yeah, the, the fund is definitely a capital growth um, play, it's not a yield play. In terms of returns, our expectation is that the returns are on a very different level from equities, property, commodities and things. I think it's hard to put a number around it, mm -hmm. um, but we expect the returns to be significant. Um, if you just uh, look at where prices need to be just to achieve uh, stay within two degrees versus where they are now. So there's been the IPCC and the World Bank and a lot of them have come out and said at a minimum carbon prices need to be at $150. Mm -hmm. And today they're at around $30. So that can give you... I, I feel though you're hesitant in putting a number on the table because um, A, it sets expectation and and B, the number will be so high that you'll think people will think, you know, this this is, um, you know... Too good make to be true. Too good to be true. Um, the, the other side of that is if I was asking a different way, if I was to have this conversation in five years, um, you know, if you hadn't returned a compound annual growth of X, what what would you be really disappointed in if you couldn't get at least over that? Uh, I would be really disappointed if we couldn't get over 30% um, okay. annually. I'm very high conviction, obviously. Um, and I think that the returns will be well above that. Um, but I think it's very difficult to put a number on it. Sure. And I think it's also difficult um, to put timing around it. Like we need, we definitely need to take action and you're seeing more and more governments and corporates doing that. But in terms of where, when that catalyst will be, uh, it could be in six months, it could be in two years. Um, but I think it's really important as an investor to be aware of the carbon markets, but also to be aware in your portfolio of the exposure that you have to carbon. Like if you think about your investment portfolio today, mm -hmm a lot of the companies that you will be invested in have a carbon exposure 
and they currently don't have a plan to get to net zero. And if carbon continues to be priced more and more around the world and that price is increasing, you've got a significant risk to that price of carbon. And so you should be thinking about how to hedge that uh, carbon risk in your portfolio with also the potential upside that actually it will deliver significant returns. Okay, terrific. And, and what, what are the big risks here? Um, what are the big risks to this type of strategy? I mean, the biggest risk is that we don't take action. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for whatever reason, it could be, as you say before, that we're entering like a, high, a higher inflationary environment. So governments are hesitant to continue increasing the price because they don't want it to, um, their voters um, to feel yep. the pain. I think that risk is becoming less and less likely um, just because there is so much public pressure on governments. And I think it's part of the government's and corporate's responsibility that yes, this transition to net zero and to a greener future is going to increase costs in the short term, mm -hmm. but it's to make sure that that um, is felt uh, is or shared fairly across the spectrum so that it's not the lowest socioeconomic people who are actually feeling the brunt of it. Um, yep. And that's part of government policy to ensure that. What are the big left field risks here? And I, I think of something like geoengineering, which you know, I don't really understand. I, so I, like I carbon read and capture and to, well, like well, more capture. well, I suppose you've got carbon capture where somebody says, well, why don't we invent a big machine? We'll push it out in the middle of the ocean and it'll suck lots of carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, I, mm. I, I can't think of and understand a lot of the things that are now coming to market, if you've had asked yeah. me 10, 20 years ago about those. So that type of technology or even, you know, what they call geoengineering, I understand where people are saying, well, actually, we, we can affect, you know, how many clouds there are in the sky and therefore the temperature of the earth. And, you know, there's all sorts of geopolitics. If you think at the moment people are concerned about, you know, Russia and um, uh, and also Taiwan and the the USA. You know, you can imagine if one country says, "Well, right, we'll we'll just put a big cloud up, but we'll send it over that side," type of thing. Um, but some of those big left field technologies could change, you know, th this whole framework altogether. Is that correct? They definitely could, and they would have an impact. I think. Um from the perspective of society, we can't rely on them. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have carbon pricing mechanisms, mechanisms in place uh, to drive that transition. There is obviously the risk that we can, we find some really cheap uh, way to reduce our emissions. I think it's very unlikely. Um, and more broadly, I, I mean, the fund and what we do primarily is looking at carbon but it's not actually carbon which is um, the problem. We've got uh, reduced biodiversity, and so a lot of these projects are actually improving biodiversity in these regions. And so there's other um, positive externalities which will continue to be priced. Um, so even if you do find a geoengineering solution which can suck carbon out of the air, we will still need a lot of these projects in place uh, to ensure that we don't end up in a catastrophic scenario in 50 years time. What questions haven't I asked that I should have asked? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, 
I mean, in terms, the way I think about it, uh, the market is, is that this is an investment that is required um, no matter what. Um, in terms of how you get exposure to it, there's a lot of ways, but getting exposure um, through the price is uh, the easiest way, but it's also a way for you to have a meaningful impact. Um, some people will say, well, are you just like profiting from the problem? Um, which is a really good question. In my view is, is we're not. We're actually helping the transition because we need to be providing price signals mm -hmm. to corporates and governments. And I think as long as we are doing that, we're pushing... Um, You're on the right side of the ledger. Yeah. Um, who, who else in the market or around the world uh, are operating similar funds? So there's a lot of... Uh, people uh, or funds based in Europe and America which are very focused on the compliance markets and so they offer products which are 100% compliance focused. Obviously that's the largest market. There's also some ETFs in the compliance market but at the moment it's very difficult to get exposure to the voluntary market which is where we see significant upside but also where we actually think um, that the capital needs to go towards because it's these um, developing countries which will be impacted first by climate change and as investors and as a society we have a responsibility to help them and help them with that transition and we can do that in a way that actually provides them an income and helps them develop. Um, so there's uh, a few groups which are uh, focusing on that. I know there's um, in Australia, Tribeca has launched a similar mm -hmm. fund to Kakariki's fund, um, but there's not uh, a lot of people in the space at the moment. I'm sure more will come, mm -hmm. um, which I actually think is a good thing because we need more and more people focused um, on this sector. Terrific. Izzy Jensen, thank you very much for being our guest on the podcast. Thanks for joining us and, and, and taking it easy on me on an area where I was very uncomfortable and didn't know it, but I really, really wanted to know and want to know more. So thank you very much for pushing me along on that journey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.